Previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> Readers, two things. One, we mentioned this in the newsletter, but Emma and I, uh, we met at this cool science fiction fantasy workshop called Clarion. And along with our classmates from, uh, from 2012, we've got this fundraising anthology, this collection of 15 cool stories. And it's out now for pay what you want. So you can go to the link that's in the doobie-doo. I'm not sure if we're allowed to steal that from the Vlogbrothers. But, you know, yes. it'll be in the liner notes. And, um, yeah, pay anything from $0 upwards. And all of the money goes to fund future scholarships, which is fabulous. Because it helps everybody from all backgrounds go to what is an incredible boot camp for science fiction writers. That's true. You know who went to the Clarion? Quite a few. <laughs> I thought that's what you were getting at. <laughs> I do. Ted Chang went to Clarion. <laughs> Ted Chang? Why yeah. is Ted Chang in the news these days? Well, maybe he wrote a little movie. Well, he wrote a story that a movie was based on. Yeah, yeah. Which um, there's a bunch of cool articles out there right now about uh, about that guy's attempt to translate it. And also Ted Chang's reaction to the movie. Uh, everyone seems to love it. I'm very excited to That's see so it. That's so cool because from just the standard kind of science fiction advertising poster, I was like... I mean, I know I love the story, but what are they? How are they going to make the movie awesome? And I'm so excited that they have. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember uh, as a as a late teen watching commercials for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and thinking, no, <laughs> incorrect. No, these are all incorrect. Which made me then have a little doubt for everything. The opposite of what you've described as often happens in the way we're talking about life. Where every time I saw a horrible commercial, I thought. I wonder if that's an amazing thing. And, that is, and that is a beautiful attitude to go around the world with. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So speaking of death, as we always do on this podcast, Storylogical, stories about death. Uh, my pick that's for this That's our subtitle. Week. I think it could be. Yeah, I think so. That was my tone. Mm -hmm. That was a subtitle tone. Uh, my pick is a story called... You Have Never Been Here by M. Rickert, which is subtitled Halloween because it is in a collection of her short stories called Holiday, which, as I mentioned to Emma, has perhaps the greatest introduction I have ever read, which I would read to you, but it is long in the sense that it would take me five minutes to read and you would get bored because why is this person reading me an introduction to a collection of short stories? But... If you needed another reason to buy it, besides the fact that I'm about to talk about one of the stories in it, there's your reason. Uh, you Have Never Been Here is a story told like an odd preponderance of our stories in the second person. It's you, you, you the, all the time. It really is. I think we, what do you reckon, like 20% of the stories we pick? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, than that. I've already got a theory as to why. I think that uh, we may have picked a preponderance of second person stories because it both gives you the sense implicitly that you are the person in the story mm -hmm. and yet the person telling the story almost always does exist but has adopted a tone that disassociates themselves for themselves so it's just like for me when i read this story you've never been here i get the same particularly in this story which is all built around a kind of centering in your body at the same time you're dislocated from it i love the way the second person is both more intimate and distancing it, it reminds me of how distant I feel from my body at times, yet how aware I am of it, which is kind of the center of the story. The story is about about a narrator, 
possibly a boy, possibly a girl, mostly unmentioned. There are a few clues you could read however you like, I suppose. It's about this person, and they've gone to a hospital because something is wrong with them, and they go to a very strange hospital where there are doctors, which are always referred to as the doctors. Um, and there are some very strange things happening in this hospital where they gather a bunch of sick people, and everybody seems to know that this is a place where you're going to swap bodies as an ill person with another person who I suppose may be not ill, because there are just these little hints about how people come with suitcases full of clothes, and the doctors don't really tell them that that's not necessary, and that also this procedure is like just changing your clothes. Um, one of the things that I loved about the story is that, kind of like Sarah Pembro's Death House, the story begins in this place that is entirely focused on death and entirely focused on this person's body that seems to be failing them, and yet then spends its middle in a lot of the ways, spends its turning point becoming a story about love and understanding what love is and trying to understand how it lives in the body and how it lives in our lives. When the narrator gets to the hospital and the doctors say, okay, the thing that you have to do is to find somebody to love, and then they sort of say well that's that's basically it off you go i immediately thought of the lobster the movie by the greek director whose name escapes me right now um, but, he, but he's the greek director the one greek director yeah. that i've ever heard of yeah ah and i love that movie so much the way they you know this guy goes to a hotel almost like a, a summer camp where because in that society you have to be paired off with somebody people who aren't paired off go to this hotel to find someone to be with and anybody who doesn't find somebody else gets turned into a dog and and the kind of weird surreality of that is very exciting but also its specificness and concreteness was kind of in my mind so when I read through this story I was waiting for these concrete events or concrete kind of um, effects or decisions or ideas and and the whole story is quite floaty and it doesn't really, at least I didn't get a sense of, of that kind of precision. When you said the story was about swapping bodies, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But I hadn't at all picked that up from oh, my yeah. reading of it. Because the doctors are trying to figure out love and they want them to love. And like, why would these people that are interested in exchanging bodies be interested in love? And I was like, oh, because love to a certain extent from an evolutionary perspective is geared towards genetic compatibility so mm. seeing how people pair off and who they loved tell them something about their experiments because they're interested in how these things will take and because the story is so incredibly focused on what it is like to be in a body that prepares you for the idea that there will be a body swap at some point and something that i loved about that is because well because of normalization like uh, we live in our body and it is very easy to become normalized and settled to the fact that you are in this body. The story and the way that is, um, and the way she writes it is all about denormalizing and unsettling us about what it means to be in a body. Uh, one of the ways that she works on unsettling you is she often refers to people not as people or the narrator not as people, they're just bodies. Um, so there are passages like this. The bodies move down the long hallways, weaving around each other, pausing at doors with numbers and pictures on them. Later you find out the pictures are for the children who are too young to know their numbers. 
The bodies open unlocked doors, and the bodies see pleasant rooms painted yellow, wallpapered with roses, cream-colored, pale blue, soft green, furnished with antiques and wicker. Well, she does the same thing when when love happens. Uh, after the narrator and Farino have gone off together, it's described in this way. You are a body following another body. Your heart is beating against your chest, hard, like the fist of a dying man. Let me out, let me out, let me out. You are a body, and you are breathing, but your breath is not your own. The body in front of you quickly turns his head left, right, looking down the long white hall. The body runs, and your body follows, because he has your breath now. And the story itself, in the events that happen, are very interested in normalization. The doctors always act as if everything is normal. They tell them, all the feelings are normal, all the feelings are okay. Scared, not scared, worried, not worried, happy, not happy. <laughs> it's all fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and there's this great uh, little little extended scene where the narrator is talking about the doctors eating this full course meal and then ending the meal going, oh, what do you think the bodies are doing tonight? Crying. Yep, that's what they always do on the first night. <laughs> yeah. They cry. So the doctors are this incredible image of just clinical normality, yeah. whereas the narrator is so focused and the writing is so focused on unsettling us about what it means to be the body that it becomes this amazing to me contemplation of, of the strangeness and normalness of things it was like I was thinking like with death how can something so common feel so strange to us all the time people die all the time and the, that same question of how can something so common feel so strange you can say the same thing about love she focuses so deeply on the physical aspects of love the feeling that your breath becomes caught up in someone else's breath mm -hmm. that it denormalizes love at the same time that it makes it more intimate yeah it's incredibly dislocating the way she writes about both inhabiting the bodies and also um as the narrator starts to spend time with some of the other characters in the story about how those characters kind of impinge on the narrator and man everybody has an opinion on who this narrator is and what they should be doing it's very you know you can kind of see that they feel very done unto and i think that's why though we talked about you know the gender not being particularly specified that i kind of read particularly the second time a kind of queer undertone because there were a few signs to me that maybe the narrator was a gendered male um and there was a moment where the the brief flame of of love that happens in the story is between the narrator uh, and a man named farino turns out to be a criminal turns out to be a bit more complicated love maybe than we would have thought but um anyway and uh right between the narrator and this man named farino and the doctors when they see that this love is starting to happen they remark that it's such a strange thing they never would have expected love between those two people but oh well whatever let's continue the science let's see what happens um and that queerness to, to me too that i read into it was also though based on the fact that farino is a criminal and so it felt like there was this subtext that these were experiments being done and criminals were brought in as part of the experiment because of course. Mm. And so then it was like, to be fair, I've gone a bit away from the story, but it was <laughs> like, sure, you bring in the criminals, you bring in the queers. Maybe I've just got some other stuff on my well, mind a, in the past week. <laughs> there's a lot of space around the story for you to bring your own imagination to it and your own thoughts. And as I say, the first time... Oh, you know, in my reading, it didn't, I didn't think about body swapping. And 
This story is in, th- in three sections. You have section one where the narrator is on a train, experiencing their body, and there's some incredible kind of descriptions around how their clean fingers tap against the dirty glass of the train and uh, of the window, and it's it's all incredibly well inhabited. Then you have the hospital section, and then which we've talked about, which is also filled with a lot of exciting, difficult, weird people. And then you have this last section where the narrator comes out of the treatment and is arrested, but is denying who they appear to be. And the the policemen are calling the narrator Farino. And because I didn't think about body swapping, I was, what I brought to it was this kind of um, split personality thing that I was thinking whether the the narrator had had some kind of cataclysmic life event either they'd committed a crime so awful they couldn't cope with understanding and admitting that they'd done it or maybe something had happened to them that was incredibly traumatic and they had therefore become this person who was split into all these characters that we see in the hospital Farino the guy who goes off and becomes a lover Renata the lady who perhaps has had cancer and has got bloody well she's got a bald head and 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 bloody marks or cuts around her head and so I started to see all of these different characters as fractures of the narrator um which made it fascinating but also feel like a true meaning was always slightly out of my grasp like speaking of meaning it the story reminded me a lot of Shawshank Redemption. And when Ebert was writing about Shawshank Redemption for the second time, because he was like, oh, this is, this is a pretty good movie. I better write about it a second time. Um, at the end of the review, he just flat out says, he's like, some people say life is a prison. We are red and Andy is our redeemer. All good art is about something deeper than it admits. And just like in Shawshank, in a, in a sense, even though it begins by like, this is a story about a guy in a prison. It pretty much evolves into, yeah, this is your life, which most stories end up kind of doing. But there are particular stories, like the lobster that you talked about, where a story is set in a very specific place, so that it becomes very much like a model. Like, here is life constrained within these walls. Um, it's a life sentence. You're going to die. Now let's see what happens with relationships and love in this story. And the same thing happens with Sarah Pinbro's death house. All of these people have been put in a house, because they're all going to die pretty soon. And then they have love, and they're like, what's the point of love? We're about to die. And it's like, yeah, there's life. Um, so that to be the first time I read it, the second time I read it, that continues to be the, the meaning of the story, that, except that in this story, there is an interesting, you're right, an interesting tension between the fact that whereas Shawshank or Death House, I think, become better novels the lobster becomes an amazing movie because they're very specific about the place where those people are this story is taking its power as a short story and they can be very specific about the body that is the person at the center of the story and a bit more vague about the place um so it again is dislocating because usually when you read stories you want to be in the space and this story makes you in the person to a certain extent Okay, my pick for this week is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, which is in the Starlit Wood Anthology, edited by Nava Wolf and Dominic Parisienne, which is an awesome name. For me, this week has been Naomi Novik 
all day, all the time. So I we had uprooted on the shelf for a little while, and I've only <laughs> a little while, <laughs> eighteen months. Yeah, okay. Six have... of which I spent talking about how amazing it was. <laughs> and finally, I have listened to you and taken your advice and read it and loved the hell out of it. Loved it so much that when um, I saw she had a story in Starlet Wood, I turned straight to her story, read the whole thing and adored it and couldn't wait for us to talk about it on the podcast. So the conceit of Starlet Wood uh, is that they're retellings of different fairy tales, but not just retellings in a kind of a generic sense. The thing that I love about this story is that, sure, it's a retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, okay? We kind of generally know the shape of that story, but what it really gets into and explicitly talks about at the beginning is Rumpelstiltskin is a story about avoiding paying your debts. Um, and this story is about a moneylender who never, never calls in his debts until one day his his wife is so sick that his daughter has to take up the mantle and go around and start calling in his debts and becoming the moneylender for the village. And so it's it takes that kind of emotional or, or like, I don't want to say undercurrent, it takes the crux of the Rumpelstiltskin story and recasts it in a different light where you have a young girl who is the fulcrum of power around which this story oscillates, right? It's her who takes up the power of becoming the moneylender. It's her who later on in the story, after she's demonstrated that actually she's pretty good at this stuff and she's starting to build up a small fortune, a small fortune. That always seems like such a weird description. Uh, it's particularly small since she has to keep giving bits of it away to the fairy man who then asks for more. Well, yes. Yeah, so yeah. as she starts to demonstrate that she's good at this money stuff, the there is a Starrick who comes, who seems to be a kind <laughs> I love, of a fairy. I love that you call it a Starrick because that's probably how it looks. S-T-A-R-Y-K, Steric. Um, But because he was this wintry person, I couldn't look at that and be like, oh, it's a Stark. I don't know, is it Jon Snow? Is some, <laughs> somebody from the kingdom of winter is coming? But just imagine, those guys are in need of money and they've somehow broken their way into this story <laughs> and they're like, give it, give it. They're the White Walkers. In my oh my goodness. Yeah. They, they totally could be. But anyway, they're White Walkers who like gold. So every so often, this elf slash Steric slash fairy turns up and leaves a bag of fairy silver at the moneylender's door and tells her that she has to replace it with gold. And so she comes up with this way of turning it into gold, not by, as her mother at first suggests, not just by paying the golden sum herself, but by, oh, right, I can melt this, take this to a jeweler, get it melted down and sell it on for more money. And so she uses her brains to solve <laughs> slash, the problem. Um, economics yeah she uses economics to solve exactly and i kind of loved yeah. it for that like it's a fairy tale that allows a woman to be more than just her ovaries yes i would argue because it's not a fairy tale and that that's the way it functions that there's a difference like there's a reason why we say something is a fairy tale and we say something is a short story or mm -hmm. that something is a fable and that something is fiction because like i went back and read rumpelstiltskin and and the fairy tales even the ones that aren't as clear as Rumpelstiltskin are all generally very short mm -hmm. and generally one of two things indifferent to the sufferings of humanity yes. 
or very interested in making a moral slash absurd point. So like Rumpelstiltskin, yeah, it's about avoiding paying your debts because the king is like, uh, my daughter's beautiful. Uh, I'll just make up this story about how she can spend stuff into gold. I don't know how <laughs> yeah. she'd do it, uh, but I'm sure nobody will figure out. Maybe he just wanted his water, water, wanted his daughter to die, and he's like, I'll make up this story, and then, I don't know. It's cruel. Uh, it's a bit like Donald Trump's campaign. So I'll just make up this stuff. Oh, man, it's working. I don't know <laughs> what he had to ultimately, I don't know how he's going to handle those debts eventually when Rumpelstiltskin comes around. Uh, you know what? Every time I read Rumpelstiltskin, though, I, which I did with this story, it ends with her finding out his name through luck mm-hmm. slash the power of the king. Like she can ask people to go look for stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's not, I mean, because she's kind of close to power now, she can get his name and it ends with him being so angry. He stomps his foot into the ground and it gets stuck and he tears himself in half when he tries to pick it up, mm-hmm. which is where Kevin Brockmeyer gets his story, A Day in the Life of Half of Rumpelstiltskin, which is a cool story. You should go read. Um, um, yeah, and but but this story to me, why I was saying that like it, it's fiction is because it takes that simple demeaning, dehumanizing reality that's in a fairy tale. Because mm-hmm. none of those people are real. Uh, I end up far more empathetic with Rumpelstiltskin, who's supposed to be the agent <laughs> of impurity, who has sullied this woman by helping her get money, and then wants to take the only thing that Elsa value she has, which is her yeah reproduction. <laughs> Um, I'll take that baby from you. Uh, why is everybody always taking the firstborn? It made me think, was infant mortality such a thing that in all stories they wanted to make believe there was some reason that all of these poor mothers had for losing their babies? Oh they, my gosh, yeah, it could be. Um, and this story humanizes everything. Like yes. it, it makes the morality complicated. And yet the thing that makes it so fairy tale-ish too to me is besides the fact it follows some fairy tale stuff where things come in threes it has a very deep deep and apparent moral because because look Rumpelstiltskin comes from Germany or it is purported to perhaps come from Germany um, or Germanic people let's put it that way and if this is a story where she's like look that story that they told about money lending is a bunch of crock that demonizes the the changing of one thing into more money when we're talking about Jewishness and the the demonization of, of Jewish people as as dirty money lenders, mm. the thing that I love and that we've talked about and that is in this story is how the stories we tell ourselves about other people can help us to marginalize them and then mm. demonize them for whatever it is they do to survive on the margins. Yeah, one of the major fairy tale things it does for me is it it, um, it pivots around a bargain that Miriam ends up in not by choice like this fairy just turns up and is like dude change this into gold for me and she's like um okay i guess i have to and i thought about how many other fairy tales like oftentimes what fairy tales are doing are trying to warn you against getting into bad bargains right don't don't set up a situation where you get what you want but then you promise to give this mysterious magician the first thing you see when you leave the house or like, right. be wise yes. with the things that you promise to people yes or at least have enough power that you can send out people and get lucky and find out the bad person's name so that then you ruin him yes yeah. yes um i was trying to figure out i mean it's not it's a major fairy tale trope but it's not the only one there are millions of fairy tales that don't revolve around that but but I enjoyed how she took this situation and turned it turned it around for herself. 
Um, yeah, both Naomi and Miriam. Yeah. Yeah. But something that I loved in this story and that I loved in, in Uprooted is exactly that, is about the importance of bargains, about the complicated bargains we make with ourselves and with other people and the complicated dependencies that result on that. So she puts herself in a complicated place because she accepts the silver. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose she has nothing else to do, but once she accepts the silver, she's now yeah, in she's a dependency relationship in with this thing. Yeah. Uh, and she does the best she can with it. And it is fascinating that part of the bargain that is just is a really hard bargain. This guy has read The Art of the Deal. He knows how to push. <laughs> yeah. um, this steric. Steep inflation. Because um, he's like, look, here's what's going to happen. Is you're going to take the silver and make it into gold. And you're going to do it three times. Each time compounding the interest and giving me even a greater return on my silver. I'll keep bringing you more silver and you keep bringing me a greater return. At the end of that, you'll get to be my queen and come with me. Uh, and at the end of the story, right, what's amazing is that this story has circuited around the, the stories that people tell themselves. So it begins with Rumpelstiltskin, which is a story people tell to shame moneylenders. In the middle, there's the most rightest, awesomest scene that I could talk about a lot, but it's this bit where her driver decides oh, yeah. that he's going to steal money from her. And he tells himself a story about money lending and how it's not really her yeah. money. Yeah. And she says that, Miriam says that, you know, I know the sound of a man telling himself a story to justify the wrong he's about to do. And what I love is that it comes back around in the third thing, in the third part of the story, because Miriam, in a sense, has to make up a story in her mind where she imagines the courtly intrigue that Steric might be involved in (laughs) through the advice that her grandfather has given her so that she can imagine that maybe she has a choice where there isn't one. And so the story wraps up this thing where, right, the greatest power and sorrow we have as people is that we can believe stuff that isn't true. We can make up stories. And sometimes that's to excuse our wrongs. Sometimes it's to give ourselves a choice. And what makes her choice so moral in this story to me, the story she makes up for herself is a story that allows herself a choice and allows the steric also more yeah. choice than it's maybe not, they had to begin with it's not dehumanizing right it's not dehumanizing anybody. and it's yeah to me it's very specific that it's not taking away choice mm. right if you kill someone you have taken away their choice and there's a that beautiful interaction with her grandfather where he asks her do you want to marry the steric and she is the scales fall from her eyes and she's suddenly empowered to do something about it because she's like, oh, yes, I have a choice in this matter. Yeah. Or maybe the scales come into her eyes because now <laughs> she feels like there are options she can weigh as a moneylender. Oh, God. Um, and for me, that rang so true. Like, never am I more powerless as when I imagine that I have no options. Right. And as soon as I can see one option... I can start to spin out what are the other things that I might do. Yes, yes. That's the greatest heroic trait of the doctor in Doctor Who. He He refuses to believe that there is any situation Mm -hmm. which does not have an exit. Um, You described the, or you mentioned dependencies. And there's something that I admire a great deal about the way Naomi writes, which is she picks out the thing to describe that is slightly indirect oftentimes so for instance in uprooted there's a phrase where after this bloody battle they're laying out the dead people and it takes them a long time and it's hard work and she just simply says the moon was on their faces by the time we were done and i just had to stop reading where i was and feel that it was so 
perfect. You were deeply inside that narrator's point of view. That's what she would have seen, right? She might not have seen, she was in a wood, the moon might well have been up high. What I, I loved about it is that it describes something that is perhaps not the most direct observed thing, but one step away from it, which makes you feel, makes it feel even more powerful. One of the places that she does that in this story is there's a, a moment between her and her grandma where she comes home from the jeweler's store to put a nice dress on before they go see the Duke. And suddenly she's aware that this jeweler, Isaac, might be a potential love interest, but she kind of doesn't really explicitly declare it to herself. And she certainly doesn't declare it to her grandma. All she says is, do you know this person? And then as she's getting dressed, her grandma just asks, would you like me to put your hair up again? And there's so much understood in that, so much communicated between the two of them, so much kind of shorthand. I, I really enjoyed how far it, it traversed in one sentence. One other random thing I will say is that reading this story connected to this book I read called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humanity, which talked about how money was like most of what humanity has invented over time, a mechanism by which we can have faith and trust one another. If you think of money and religion as competing faiths, rather than there's money, which is the, the love of which is the root of all evil, and there's Christianity, which is good. Mm. But if you look at them as just two competing faiths, no wonder they don't get on well with another. <laughs> They're both fighting for control over groups of humanity to be their guiding influence. There is, and especially in at least our memory of fairy tales and our retellings of them, often a dehumanizing weight placed upon an idea of purity, pure romance, pure economics, which is belittling. And that's not often in a lot of old fairy tales exactly if you read them because they're just too weird and too absurd. It's more like they're excretion through Western thought and Christian, Judeo-Christian societies have implanted them with morals that didn't exist before. Mm. And Naomi's stories re-excrete them and reshape them and make them these fully-fledged stories with, with what to me is not, not a dehumanizing purity, but a purity of, of care, kind of purity of focus. Thanks for listening, readers. Uh, we have probably not managed to talk about all the things that you've enjoyed about these stories. Nor, most likely, all the stories that you have read in your life. So if you would like to recommend us any stories that you've loved, or tell us your opinions about these stories. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Arabilistaro. And if you have enjoyed the show or just enjoy the podcast, but for whatever reason didn't particularly like this show, you could still go on iTunes and leave a review, which helps people find us, and we like that. And you can also <laughs> whisper it in the ears <laughs> of your... Act like a dementor. Put on a hood. Yeah. Put on a cape. Yeah. With um, a hood that comes right over your face. Yeah. Go knock on your neighbor's door. No, don't knock on it. Just whisper through the keyhole. Story like that or if you're in the mood just whisper resist <laughs> yeah resist. you can follow chris on twitter at kuvals and you can follow emma on twitter she is at eg kosh and for everything else for appropriate and inappropriate gifts 
links to past episodes and a chance to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Oh, yeah. Emma's really awesome at drawing. Did you guys know that? She made the Story Logical logo. She made the color cover. She made the color. No, she made the <laughs> I made cover. the color yellow, guys. She made the color, she made the color yellow. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she, made, she made the covers. An amazing cover. I Thank love you. it. Emma's covers for our Clarion volumes, which now there are three, red, orange, and yellow. See if you can figure out a pattern there. Okay, I've given you enough time to see if you can figure that out. Uh, it's a rainbow. A lot of Emma's covers, I like them because they have our little awkward robot, the awkward robot being the totem imaginary creature. Mascot. Mascot, yeah. Mm -hmm. Our totem imaginary mascot person uh, is an awkward robot. And Emma, she always puts the, the robot on the cover in a way that when I look at it, I tend to think, oh, that's... Well, it's also kind of sad. <laughs> it's always and a it's very kinda, sad robot, cute. isn't it? Uh, yeah, but then that, that orange volume, that was a little robot with a little uh, octopus. And they were walking along under yeah. an umbrella. But yeah. I always felt like maybe they were so, talking yeah, about somebody something. who just died yeah. or about like, think, some relationship troubles right? they were having. Yes, that's the way I think about all of my <laughs> stories, is that either they're about someone who's just died or they're talking about someone who's just died. Um, I certainly have felt often the most awake and and aware around death, like at funerals, or I guess people feel the same way about weddings, but I have hung out in far more graveyards than I have. I don't know, what is the equivalent of a graveyard with a wedding? Wedding receptions. I feel or like reception. graveyards well, I guess are I just, much... I mean, like, you go to a funeral and people die, mm -hmm. and then after that, there's this marker Wake. forever that you can go visit. Whereas oh, yeah, with a true. wedding, what do you go... Um, I think that in some ways, oh, this is going to sound so morbid, but I actually prefer funerals because everything is stripped away. Weddings are amazing, joyful events, but in some ways, I think they've become so uh, idealized and people have such incredible hopes and aspirations for the day itself rather than the relationship well, yeah, that yeah. you can almost feel like everybody playing a role, playing a long to whatever the script of the day is that it can feel kind of oh i don't know strange and icky yeah 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 i get that i think when you say oh my god it's going to sound so morbid for most of our listenership it's just going to be oh my god that sounds just like me <laughs> um most of the writers we have found I know our people. Are, are drawn yeah i don't know just most of the cool people that i've known are a bit more morbid than wedding me because I think you're right that part of it is, is most of the stories about death that we consume are not consumed by the performance of people mourning. Whereas a lot of romance stories, or at least a preponderance of them that shapes the narrative, build up to this huge performance of the ceremony of love. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or, the, or they're, they're just whole weddings about, <laughs> they're whole movies about the process of getting married or about the totems of marriage in a way that if you did that with a funeral, which movies have done, it immediately becomes an indie film. Yes. Um, the Pallbearer. Actually, I think that, that is the name movie? of a major film. Yes, and I, but I think... It, I would totally watch that. Um, what's some other good funeral roles? I feel like Pallbearer is the main one. 
I don't know. I've only been a pole bearer once and we didn't really bear the pole. I've been it more than once. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You can tell me if this is the case for you. Experienced pole bearer. Did you actually bear the pole? You don't really call it that, the coffin. or Because we just wheeled it up the aisle on a kind of a gurney because it's so freaking heavy. Oh, and it took no. six of us straining of to these... lift it onto the conveyor belt. Oh, because you earn them. Yeah. Uh, we don't earn our dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For <laughs> yes, the most part, them. we don't earn yes. them. Uh, I know. And you burn them and they go into an urn. Uh-huh. So I'm just I'm just nouning the verb. No, and the bee the is noun. lost in the fire? Yes. Well played. Uh, all of the funerals that I've been involved with, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, 10, 15, no one was burned. There was no conveyor belt. It was entirely church, graveside service thing. I mean, that's really lacking in drama when we... you're not sending someone into a burning pit. Uh, not if, I mean, if you do the funerals the way I do them, you get your drama. <laughs> okay. Um, it was, it was, it was strictly, uh, the, the coffin is already at the, in the church near where the people speak. Oh yeah. Open. Um, I remember that was weird. Uh, open or closed. It entirely, it depends on the people doing the service and how much of the face is recognizable and desired to be shown. And so the pole bearing is two things. You have to pick up the coffin from where it is in the church and carry it out to the hearse. And then the hearse drives up to the gravesite, and then you take it mm-hmm. from the hearse and take it to the grave diggers who put it. And then there's a service. And then the drama comes because if you're like me, right? Even very early in my life, right? I'm I was the kid who stayed for the end of the movie. <laughs> I do not leave a funeral <laughs> until that stayed. dirt <laughs> is on the coffin, mound it up. Done. So I've seen, you know, they 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 start. They have like the dirt on a on this kind of rigged truck, rigged to be a grave truck we'll get to why how it's rigged in a minute but they take a shovel and they they, you know they start shoveling the dirt off the truck it's a full scale jcb style that doesn't mean anything to you does it no but you mean the caterpillar thing Mm -hmm. no it's not like that it it is a it is a kind of flatbed truck right but after they scoop a lot of start the process of Mm -hmm. getting the the dirt going they they tip it and then there's um kind of a rack and Pulley, is that what it's called? It's a yeah, lever yeah, that yeah. you're it's ratcheting. It's coming back to me now from you're... your mom's. Yeah, yeah, you were there. Good so, times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know how it works. They go, they ratchet. And so yeah, as you stand next to the, to the grave, you just hear this, and then as the dirt falls, and then and just over and over again until it's, uh, until it's all done. Mm-hmm. You're burning. You stick them in there. That's drama, but it's like five seconds of drama. This is like a good eight minutes of watching your loved one be buried. <laughs> oh, suffocating. I think, burn me, please. Um, so I guess we should talk about my pick first. Wait, wait, we have to talk about the other cool thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, we should talk about your thing. So the thing about Emma being good at art is she has a thing that came out this week, which is this edition of Shelf Heroes. Which uh, Emma, would you like to tell everyone about how amazing you are? You want me to introduce it that no, way? No, I think I think you should tell them. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, this uh, magazine called Shelf Heroes, uh, which is put out by somebody named Ben something or other, right? Yeah. Do you want me to look it up? No, it's fine. Okay, we don't have to put it. Put it. Put it. You know, it's Shelf Heroes. Yeah. Um, which is this 
<laughs> suddenly I'm going to go into a Star Trek voice. It's this magazine with this continuing mission to go through <laughs> the alphabet and for each letter of the alphabet, gather a bunch of writers and artists together to tell stories and create art around movies they love, which begin with that letter. So shelf, hero, shelf, yeah, shelf heroes, get in your mind the old days when there was a shelf and people had movies on them. <clears throat> I miss those days. I'm going to come back to you days. I'm going to come back to those days. Um, so... Emma is in the issue E, as in E. Promote <laughs> sex. Um, and her comic is this two-page spread that is in two tones, orange and black. Uh, as we know, Emma is morbid. She's all into the pumpkin death. Uh, and Emma, uh, tell the, the tell the folks at home what movie you picked. It's about Eddie the Eagle. Is that is that an American film? goodness no it is a movie about a 1980s ski jumper from the uk who was going kind of a failure at almost everything but then decided he was going to become a ski jumper and get into the the olympic team Mm, which was super easy because we didn't have an olympic team of ski jumpers so all he had to do was jump the qualifying uh distance i guess classic it's called. british structure e- eccentric fails at life realizes <laughs> yeah. no one has done thing decides i will do that thing exactly but the comic is about me and my mom and going to see it together and how we kind of connected over the movie it's very sweet um it is i i heard a tale at the lunch party of people literally breaking into tears <laughs> breaking yes. into sobs while reading emma's comic um, never, never have I had a prouder moment as a creator than somebody telling me that. 